you have uh, your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to our second reading. This is now found in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. We're going to read a little bit of each chapter. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It's printed out for you there in the bulletin. And there's also a sermon outline in, on the following page to help you follow along uh, with what we're going to say today. Maybe think of this uh, scripture reading and this sermon as just an intro to communion today. Uh, this passage is a perfect introduction to what communion is all about. No, no doubt you will recognize some of the verses uh, as we read it together. I'm going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 52. See, or behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of, human, of any human being, and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He will grow up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain. And bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he hadn't done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Isn't it often true that uh, we have favorite pictures of the people we love? Have you ever thought about that? 
uh, whether it's a child or a spouse or a best friend, that you've got a favorite picture that you just enjoy of them. It used to be maybe you'd put it on the desk at work or hang it up on the wall. It's more likely now it's on your phone somewhere. And you maybe scroll back to it and look at it from time to time. Uh, why is that particular picture your favorite? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, a lot of times it has to do with the fact that something uh, like, a, like a memory is being evoked. So, you know, you look at the picture and you think, we were doing this when we took that picture. We were on this trip. We shared this memory together. Or maybe even more likely, there's something of their personality, a spark that maybe only you know because you know them so well, that just comes out, it just sparkles uh, out of the picture. Can you relate to that? I want to tell you that there's a reason why ever since these verses were written here in Isaiah 52 and 53, this has been believers' favorite picture of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a reason. There's actually reasons why. Uh, from the moment Isaiah wrote it, it has befuddled people. But it's also evoked this sense of awe and absolute love and devotion. And it's not just because, although this is, this is pretty incredible, it's not just because Isaiah almost verbatim describes the cross 700 years before the cross happened. I mean, that, that in itself is pretty amazing. But that's not the only reason. I think the reason is actually found there in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. It's because there's something in this picture that only a true believer can get. Only a true believer can understand and appreciate. In fact, it says it there in verse 15. They have, to, they have to be able to see what they were not told to get this. They have to be able to understand what they've never heard. In other words, you've got, you got to have a gift given to you to be able to understand how good this portrait is. Why? Because, notice, it shows two contradictory things about Jesus at the same time. Two things that just don't seem to go together. It befuddles people. Verse 13, it says, look at my servant. He will act wisely. And everybody thinks, okay, great. I want to see this. There's so much foolishness in the world. I want to see somebody finally show up and act with wisdom. Show me wisdom, God. I'm there for it. And then it says, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Oh, amen. I want to see power. On display. I want to see glory and amazing world conquering goodness. Don't you want to see that? And yet, look at what it says. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form was marred beyond human likeness. He was beaten to the point where you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And you think, huh? Where's the wisdom? Where's the wisdom in that? Where's the being raised up, lifted up, and highly exalted in that? That's why I say you got to be a true believer. You and I this morning need to have the eyes of our hearts opened up in order to understand how one disfigured beyond human likeness could be the very wisdom of God, the very glory of God coming in, breaking in like, a, like a, an army from above into our lives to take our hearts over again for God. And I want to show you, if you look at your sermon outline, I want to show you there's three things 
that Isaiah describes about Jesus that a true believer just is mad about. <laughs> mad in a good way. Like, a true believer just loves it. Very simple this morning. First of all, it shows something about his life. Second of all, something about his death. And lastly, something about his resurrection. Just take this as an intro to communion. All right, first of all, there's something here about the life of Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, it was very contradictory. It befuddled people because Jesus lived opposite of the way that people would think that God's Messiah was supposed to live. If he was supposed to come with power, if he was supposed to come with wisdom, surely he would come like a king or you know, like some very important person dressed in purple dressed in fancy clothes and being announced everywhere he went so that everybody could you know, do the curtsy as he passed by. And yet, when you read the story of Jesus, from the very word go, right? From the very moment even his birth was just announced, there was something real strange about the way Jesus acted. Look at verse, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. It says there, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, you can't see it unless it's revealed to you. He grew up before God like a tender shoot or a tender plant. What's being described there are those little, we call them sucklings, those little uh, sprigs that, that come up out of a stump after you've already cut it down. Y'all know how that is, right? You cut a stump down and little shoots begin to pop up out of the stump. Most of them do not survive, you know, into adulthood. If maybe one or two of them do, but a bunch of them come up, don't they? They're very weak. Even the ones that do survive take double the time to grow because they're just barely hanging on, just a little life. They're sucking that little life that's left out of the stump that's been taken down. And, and Jesus came into the world like that, like a, like a little suckling, like a little, little, just barely getting sap out of something that had already been mowed down. Like a root out of dry ground, like a, like a barely thriving little sprig out of a desert land. That's what Jesus was like. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, and so therefore he was despised and rejected of people. People treated him spitefully. Because when you looked at Jesus from the moment his birth was announced all the way to his death, there was nothing in the way he lived that screamed to you, here's the king. Here's the ruler of heaven and earth. Here's the very important person. Rather, what did you find? You found someone who was born in weakness, suffering, and obscurity. Absolute obscurity. I mean, just think about the, the Christmas story. The birth announced to an unwed teenage girl. Right? Who was born in a little tiny village called Bethlehem that was seen as very unimportant, and even in that town, she couldn't get a room in the hospital to have the baby. Even in that town, she had to go to the barn out back. And Jesus was laid in a feeding trough, for goodness sake, as his first crib. Does that sound like a king? And it didn't get much better from there, y'all. Because he, he spent the next few years as a refugee in Egypt, of all places, and then when he finally came back, he went to an even, even lower town than Bethlehem, if, there, if, there, if it's possible, to Nazareth. I mean, at least Bethlehem had the claim to fame that David was from there. Nazareth was the place whose motto was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> I mean, this was the lowest of low. And then he grew up there 
as a member of a poor family who, read, who ran a carpentry shop. Jesus got splinters in his hands, calluses in his hands, dirt under his fingernails. He lived 30 years in obscurity. Hardly anybody knew, knew his name until he started teaching at 30 years old. And you look at Isaiah and you think, man, Isaiah saw something about Jesus that only a true believer can appreciate. The lowliness, the humility, the the willingness to suffer. Because he lived this way, people did not respond with glee. I mean, even his disciples half the time were confused. Y'all know that, right? Even, Even the people who were closest to him, even his own family members were like, Jesus if you want to be somebody, you gotta, you got to live a little differently than you're living. I mean, you got to get your name out there, his brother said to him. Don't, don't be up here in Nazareth and Capernaum. I mean, go down to Jerusalem where the, bright, the lights are bright, you know, and advertise yourself. And Jesus would just say simple things or things that were kind of confusing like, well, you know, my home is not this world and my time has not yet come and my kingdom's from out of this world, and stuff like that. And everybody was like, what? And he just kept going with it, living in this obscurity. If his disciples were befuddled, his enemies were enraged. How are you going to steal the name Messiah and put it and dress it into such tattered and dirty clothes as you dress it in? How can you take that precious name from the Bible and then present it as if some lowly person, uneducated person like yourself could fulfill it? They hated Jesus because of it. And yet, what was going on? Only a a true believer can recognize it. Jesus was coming into the world to identify. To identify with everybody else. This is the way it works. Let me give you an example. Uh, Y'all may remember several years back, uh, this I've now been on, I mean, I guess, over 10 years, going on 15, when the auto industry was on the fritz in the United States. And the government was having to bail out the big automakers. And in the news scandal, CEOs were still getting the same paychecks. They were getting the big bonuses. They were still going on vacations. Remember that? How did most Americans respond to that? Were they like, yeah. I love, I love how CEOs do things. Awesome. No, most people were very offended and angry. In fact, there are some people that still won't buy cars from certain companies because they're still bitter over that. What were we recognizing when that kind of set off some red flags? We were recognizing that a leader of struggling, suffering people or a leader of a struggling, suffering company needs to himself or herself taste a little, at least a little bit of the suffering that the people that he's supposed to be leading are tasting. If not, we, we cry what? Hypocrisy. We cry, you know, you're living way up in an ivory tower. You, you have no connection with the people that you're, you're trying to make decisions on, you know, on behalf of. It's crazy to us. And so, isn't it amazing that we should have seen that with Jesus? That that was exactly what he was doing? He was coming into the world not to separate himself in an ivory tower and not even just to taste only a little bit of the suffering and pain of the world. Jesus came to drink the whole cup of suffering down to its bottom. That's what the Bible says. He came to drink the cup of bitterness 
the sour cup of suffering and life in a sinful world, right down to the dregs, it says. Right down to the, the nasty stuff at the bottom that's just collected. He drank it all. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he wanted to show us why he had showed up in this world. He didn't show up in this world to live a glamorous life. He showed up in this world to identify with suffering sinful people so that he could do something about their suffering. Now I say only a true believer can appreciate that. Why? Because only a true believer has come to admit I am such a suffering sinner who needs someone to identify with a suffering sinner like me. Isn't that right? Someone who's only casual about Jesus won't think that. A casual follower of Jesus just says this, I'm a basically good person, but I've got some flaws. And so I need a personal assistant with power. I need a personal assistant with a little extra wisdom than I have to give me just a boost, just a leg up. Because, you know, basically I do things pretty good, but here and there, you know, I have my bad days. And I, I just need Jesus to put me over the edge. A true believer doesn't think that. A true believer knows that's nonsense. That actually, I'm not basically good. Actually, the goodness in my life is the accidental part. <laughs> I just happen to stumble on to doing good things every now and then. That mostly what comes out of my heart of hearts, the things even people can't see, is rotten stuff. The suffering that people experience in the world, I'm a part of making the world that way. Because of who I am, because of how I am. I needed nothing less than a Savior who was willing to fully drink the cup of bitterness in my place. I didn't need somebody who could live in the ivory tower and just give me a boost every now and then and phone down good advice every now and then into my life. Please don't treat Jesus that way. Now, if you're somebody who's just coming around and exploring Christianity, maybe you're listening in and you don't consider yourself a Christian, Come to Jesus no matter why you're coming to Jesus, because it's good to come to Jesus. So it may be you're wanting to come to Jesus because your finances are in a shambles or your family's in a shambles. Please still come. But what I'm trying to communicate is when you come, you're going to realize Jesus has a different agenda for you. Uh, Jesus has his own terms that he's requiring you to accept rather than you trying to get him to accept your terms. It's not some, Jesus, give me a good financial situation and I'll praise you. That's not the way it works, y'all. That's not the way Jesus does things. Jesus comes and says, look at me. Appalling, marred beyond human appearance, living at the bottom of the bottom in order to show those at the bottom that there's hope. In order to bring life to those who do not know a way of life any other way. Not a personal assistant to keep you in line, but a savior to bring you from death to life. That's what Jesus is. Consider, this is a, a beautiful little poem, and it's not the whole poem, but uh, it was written by a man named Ed Shalito, who was a pastor in the 1800s in Scotland. It's a poem called Jesus of the Scars. I want you to listen to this part of it. It's actually printed at the front of the bulletin today, at the beginning of the worship uh, portion of the bulletin. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. This is what a true believer understands. The other gods were strong, 
Zeus, Hercules, all those guys, right? They came down with, boom, lightning bolts and power and no weakness. But thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This morning, do you know yourself wounded? Do you know yourself wounded? Do you know yourself weak? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? Cheer up. You don't even know half of how bad you are. <laughs> you, don't, you only know a tiny bit. But also, cheer up. Jesus of the scars is here. Jesus bar, marred beyond human semblance. Jesus who was willing to have people hide their faces from him. There is no suffering that you've known in your life that Jesus didn't know. There's no suffering that you're afraid of this morning that Jesus didn't drink down to the very dregs. Is it pain? He experienced it. Is it rejection? He experienced it. Is it ugliness and being considered ugly? He experienced it. Is it sorrow? He tasted it. Is it worthlessness? He took it in. Is it guilt? He took it on. Is it death? He went into it. Jesus of the scars. Isn't that amazing? That's the first thing. A true believer loves the portrait of Jesus. Suffering, humble throughout his life. But secondly, there's his death. And this is actually the, the core of the whole passage. And you, know, you see this from verses 4 to 9. It's almost like he's, he's seeing the cross before it happened. And I actually think Isaiah did see some glimpse of the cross. It may have been, you know, in sort of like an impressionist painting form, like Van Gogh painting, where it was all kind of there but not there, you know. But he at least saw it in that blurry form that Jesus would have to go to a cross because he describes it with such accuracy. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced through his hands and through his feet and in his side for our transgressions. I mean, isn't that isn't it a perfect description of what was going on 700 years later at the cross? Amazing. And yet what's more amazing is that Isaiah didn't just tell us how Jesus would suffer. He tells us why he would suffer. Because this was the confusing thing. Think about this question. When you look at Jesus on the cross, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? When you look at Jesus on the cross. I'll tell you what people thought they were seeing when they were there that day. Some people thought they were seeing just a random act of violence. Yet another example of how the Romans are brutal. And here they are abusing the Jewish people because they hate them. And there's all this stuff going on between them. And this is just another poor Jewish guy who's being killed by the oppressive Roman Empire. Most people would have walked by that day and that's all they would have seen. They may have been angry about it. They may have been happy about it if they were Romans. They may have been sad about it. Either way, they saw a random act of violence. Isaiah says it wasn't random at all. Others thought Jesus is getting what he deserved. Even the thieves on the cross, at least one of them, accused Jesus of getting exactly what he deserved. Isn't that ironic? The thief who was getting what he deserved was saying to Jesus, He's cursed. If he's really the son of God, he could just take himself down from the cross. People passed by and jeered at him. 
They said, if he said he could build the temple in three days, why can't he not get himself down from the cross? If he's the son of God, why aren't angels coming to help him? Why isn't Elijah coming back from heaven to help him? They were saying all kinds of things. Because they could not understand that in that moment it was neither an act of random violence nor was it an example of Jesus getting what he deserved. In fact, it was an example of Jesus getting all he did not deserve. Why? Because we deserved it. We deserved it. What was going on was what God was trying to teach the Israelites every day of their lives through the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That's why it says there in verse 6, We like sheep have gone astray. It compares us to sheep who have wandered away from the shepherd. But yet, even though we've turned each to our own way, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then it says, verse 7, Jesus too was like a sheep. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughterhouse. Silent was he before his shearers. He did not open his mouth, and yet he was crushed. What was that a picture of, if not of the sacrifices performed in the temple? Where where the lambs and the bulls and all those things that God said, you must sacrifice on my altar, they were to represent the people? So that when they were killed, it was really as if the people were killed for their sins. So that when they were offered in the presence of God, it was really the people who were able to come in now into the presence of God and pray and be accepted and be seen as cleansed. That that was the math that God wanted Israel to do. That animal in the place of me. So that I could go in the place of that animal into the very holy of holies where he would bring the blood and sprinkle it. In front of the altar, he would bring the the smoke from the the fire that would burn up the offering. He would bring it into the holy place so that the incense would fill the room. And that was supposed to remind me that I, by grace, am being brought in to the holy of holies above in heaven, to the very presence of God. Isn't that amazing? And God wanted them to repeat that every day. Why? Because he knew repetition is the mother of learning. When you see things and you experience things over and over again, it gets in there some. It gets in there, right? He wanted people to see. I can't come to God except by death. Either it's going to be my death or it's going to be the death of someone else. And here it says Jesus was pierced, he was crushed, he was wounded, he was oppressed, he was punished. Literally in our place. On behalf of us. Why? So that we could be offered up to God as living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Well, we didn't come this morning to church with lambs. Praise God. And when we do the Lord's Supper in a moment, I'm not going to have to kill a lamb. Praise God. Because Jesus has already been slain. But don't let that make you think that you don't need a continual repetition of staring at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is why believers think this is the greatest portrait of Jesus. Because believers love to see the cross. They love to see the blood that was spilled. They love to see the body that was broken. You say, well, does that that make Christians morbid? No, it's not just about being morbid. It's not about loving death. It's about seeing the lamb 
who helps lambs like us who've strayed away from God come back home to the Heavenly Father. It helps us understand God's grace is not something to shrug off. Sometimes we shrug it off, don't we? We sing amazing grace, we say we believe in grace, but really we think grace just amounts to a sentimental shrug of the Almighty's shoulders. As if God's just like, yeah, you know, what, what's sin between friends? Let bygones be bygones. Just don't talk about it anymore. Not a big deal. But you look at Jesus on the cross, and what do you see? What the great preacher from a century ago said, what you see when you see the cross is damnation. Your damnation. That's what you see when you look at the cross. I see my damnation, but I see that I haven't had to take damnation because Jesus took it in my place so that I could not be condemned but accepted, robed in his righteousness rather than in my sins. That's why Christians love the cross. They love the blood. The whole world says, wow, what a horrible random act of violence. Wow, he must have done something really bad. Whoa, I don't, want, I don't want all that death stuff. That's such a downer. That's what casual believers or non-believers look at when they see the cross. But a believer whose eyes have been opened sees their salvation. The fuel that the believer needs to follow God every day of his life is found there. There's a famous painting of the crucifixion painted by Rembrandt. It's called The Lifting of the Cross. And actually, if you know a little bit about Rembrandt, he painted that picture many, many times. There's many versions of it, and he sketched it even more times. And his, his notebooks were like full of this same picture from different angles. And the final one that he settled on, and it's hanging up in a museum in Munich, the final one he, he settled on was the cross being lifted, and there at the foot of the cross, holding both sides tightly and staring at the feet that were bleeding, he painted himself, a self-portrait right there, staring, D dressed in his way out of place, you know, 1600s garb, everybody else dressed in the old, you know, first century garb. And there he is, the, the, the Dutch painter, way out of place, but his eyes are locked in on the feet. As they're bleeding, the hands helping lift the cross as if to acknowledge, I have stared at the death of Jesus and I realize it was my fault. I've stared at the death of Jesus and I realize I want to keep staring at it forever, so I'm going to immortalize myself in a picture about it. And I want to tell you, you might not be a painter. <laughs> I'm not a painter. But every Christian learns how to paint themselves, even if it's just in their heart. Paint themselves into the scene. Not as the hero, but as the... Abuser. I'm the one who put Jesus on the cross. Do you believe that? I'm the one who nailed him there. I'm the one who lifted the cross. I'm the one who needs to stare at the blood that flowed from his pierced side, his pierced hands, his pierced feet. Because it's that blood that washes me. That blood that gives me life. It's that body broken that gives me a chance with God that gives me life everlasting. Have you painted yourself in to the portrait? If you haven't, I would encourage you to think about that this morning. Communion is a perfect time to contemplate that. 
There is not a person in this room who could ever make it to heaven or who could ever even make it through life without the cross. Not a person. You say, well, you don't know how good I've been. No, I don't. But God knows how good you've been. (laughs) And he's judged it and he's found it wanting. Extraordinarily wanting. And that's why he offered up his son. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And it was for you. Now lastly, we see something of the resurrection of Jesus in this portrait. Because again, contradictory. Remember, this is a story. This is a a picture of how Jesus was marred beyond human likeness, and yet he was wise. He acted wisely. And yet he was raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Look at verses 10 to 12. It says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though, which is, we could spend a whole sermon on just that phrase. It was the will of God to crush his son. Oh my goodness. But we'll skip over it to look at what it says next. Though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he, that is Jesus, the suffering servant, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will what? Prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the what? Light of life. This is describing Easter. After he suffered, he saw the light of life. After he suffered, he was satisfied. Because by his knowledge, by his wisdom, my righteous servant, Jesus, justifies many because he bore their iniquities. He makes many pure. He makes many clean. The resurrection of Jesus proves something to the believer's heart. It proves that the sacrifice God made through his son was accepted. Had it not been accepted, had Jesus failed in some way, what would have happened? Jesus would have stayed, like every other human being who died, dead. You got that? He would have stayed dead. If there was something that Jesus did wrong, if there was some sin in him, besides the sin in us, he would have stayed under lock and key, in death forever. But because he emerged out on Easter, never to die again, that proves that God accepted him. God received the sacrifice, and there he is, earning life, earning a way into heaven for us. And that's why it describes us in this passage as his offspring. Every believer is an offspring of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's like when Jesus took that breath in the tomb that morning on Easter, you and I gained by faith our first breath of new life as well. Just like a baby when he first comes out of the womb, what does he do, right? Cry. If he doesn't cry, you give him a good smack. Because when he's crying, you know what? He's breathing. When he's not crying, not breathing. When someone becomes a Christian... When God opens their eyes and they put their faith in Jesus rather than in themselves. Breath. From the resurrection of Jesus comes flooding in. New life. And it's proper for the Bible to call us the offspring of Jesus as a result of that. We're his children. Because we gain life from his life. Because from now on when God sees us, he sees us along with Jesus. He doesn't just see you and your record which is a great thing, because if that were the case, there would be nothing but condemnation. But he sees you with Jesus' record robing you. 
so that even, you know, even the good deeds that you do, which are good, which you should do, those good deeds are accepted because they come through the robes of Jesus. They come through his blood and through his righteousness. It also calls us the offspring of God because how can it be that someone would look at this portrait and love this Jesus and not want to follow him wherever he goes? That's what offspring do, right? After that crying baby grows up a little bit and they're able to walk, what do they do? They follow dad. Follow mom. I know that's how my kids are. Follow him everywhere he goes. Right now for me, it's Xander. (laughs) He's tailing me all the time. He's tailing his mom. Those who are offsprings of Christ, those who are viewed along with him in God's eyes, we follow him. We want to follow him. We obey him. Why? Because we want to give the one who died for us satisfaction, which is what it says in verse 11. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. He will be satisfied when he sees them. He'll be satisfied. Here's a great thought for you. And I hope, you'll, I hope you'll contemplate it deeply in your life this afternoon and as we come to the supper. Often when we go to think about life decisions or when we get up in the morning to kind of give ourselves that inner pep talk that we need to get going, we're thinking often of our own pleasure, of our own satisfaction. You know, I'm going I'm to get up because there's this today and I'm really looking forward to it. It's Monday and Monday night football's tonight or, you know, it, it's... Today we got this, we're going to finish this project at work, or today's payday, or the weekend is just four days away, or it could be something more profound. I've got, I get to spend time with my wife today, or my husband, or my children today. What an awesome thing, I get to spend time with my children. Whatever those things are, we're thinking often, aren't we, about our own pleasure. Here's what the resurrection of Christ actually begins to bring into your life. You can wake up and think, how can I give God pleasure today? What might I do today that would satisfy Jesus Christ? Because when he looks at it, he says, wow, there's the evidence of my resurrection at work in their life. Wow. He or she would not be able to do that unless the breath that came out of me when I rose from the dead was also put into them. Don't you know that when Jesus looks at his children, he's pleased He's pleased. If you're in Christ, you have the pleasure of God smiling over your life. And let me tell you, he does get displeased when we sin. But there is a way, but you can never fully lose his fatherly favor. But there is also a way that when you obey Jesus, the pleasure of God like explodes. And I hope that you understand that. And I hope that in your heart that registers with you and that makes you want to do things that are in keeping with what God has called you to do. I hope so. I hope you're still not at church thinking, I'm going to obey so that I get out of hell free. I hope you're not thinking that. I hope you don't think that I'm telling you that. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we as Christians love to follow our Lord. Why? Because it gives him pleasure to see the result of his crucifixion, resurrection, and lifelong suffering played out in the lives of his children. Even if it's in the smallest way. This morning, I hope next time you get up or the next time you think about a life decision, you don't just think, how can I please myself? I hope you think of this portrait of Jesus, the favorite picture, and say, man, 
How could Jesus look at me and be satisfied? And say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Father. 